Production support for Earth Eats comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. I honestly don't know what we thought we were doing when we first started milking cows. It cost more money than we were making to produce the milk. This week on our show, we talk with Celeste Nolan, a dairy farmer featured in a new documentary on PBS. And we chat with the filmmaker, Shana Mallet hartwood Josephine McRobbie interviews Meredith Cohen of One Soil Farm. She talks about what it means to her to have a Jewish farming practice. And she reminds us that we're all connected. That's coming up in the next half hour, so stay with us. The Earth Eats News team has the week off, but we have a few stories from Harvest Public Media. As with so many large events and gatherings, the Dairy Farmers of America officials have postponed their annual meeting due to concerns over spread of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19. Harvest Public Media's Maria Carter has more. More than 1,500 people were expected to attend the yearly meeting for the DFA in Kansas City. Company officials said in a statement that health and safety were their top priorities and that they postponed the meeting out of, quote, an abundance of caution. The DFA has some 14,000 members nationwide. Last month, it made a $425 million offer to buy the nation's largest dairy processor, Dean Foods. That company had filed for bankruptcy protection in November. Maria Carter, Harvest Public Media. The Drug Enforcement Administration is no longer requiring hemp testing labs to be certified. Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports. Labs test hemp to make sure it doesn't have too much THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. Hemp growers and states were worried that by requiring DEA certification, there would be too few labs to keep up with demand. According to USDA Undersecretary Greg Ibaugh, the requirement is being delayed, not taken off the table entirely. That gives us even a little bit more time for um, labs to uh, become uh, registered with DEA and to understand that process. Ibaugh also says states now have more options for disposing of so-called hot hemp, or hemp that tests above the legal THC limit, including plowing, burning, and incorporating it as a green manure crop. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. There are 31 million beef cattle in the U.S., about one for every 10 Americans. It's a big market, both here and abroad, and one that needs protection from disease outbreaks, like those that have affected poultry in the past. Currently, there is no nationwide system to track cattle diseases. But as Corrine Boyer reports for Harvest Public Media, there's an effort to change that. Think about the last time you sat down to order a new gadget online. Chances are, you tracked your order from the time you purchased it until it landed on your doorstep. 
Today, similar technology is behind a pilot program to trace cattle diseases. Put in another way, think of it like when you go, you have a, a chip for the toll booth going on the interstate, and these are high frequency identification tags, and so they can be scanned at the speed of commerce. That's Mark Gardner, a rancher and board member of U.S. Cattle Trace. The program targets cows younger than 18 months. Cows older than that are already tracked, so Cattle Trace fills a gap. A participating rancher puts an ultra-high frequency tag on a cow's ear. Wherever that animal goes, to auction, to a feedlot, or to a meatpacking plant, a scanner reads the tag and stores it in a database. Cassie Kniebel is the program manager for U.S. Cattle Trace. She says it's... Something that we hope works for the industry and in the industry uh, because it's producer-driven. So it's not a government program. Cattle Trace started in Kansas in June of 2018 with state, federal, and private funding. Now nine other states, including Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Missouri, are working with Cattle Trace, though it aims to be adopted nationally. The producer-driven design is one reason Cattle Trace has attracted out-of-state participants like Scott Jesse, an extension agent in Virginia. Jesse works with cattle producers. Number one, it was managed by producers, and that limits the oversight of any other entity. We thought that was certainly a good way to go through the private sector. But here's the thing. Participation is voluntary, and it will stay that way. Only 65,000 tags have been given out. When asked how the tracing system would work if participation is not mandatory, Gardner says... It wouldn't work in the event of a tragedy as far as we might not be able to trace back where that animal came from. Kenny Fox raises cows and calves in South Dakota and doesn't plan on joining Cattle Trace. He says tags won't prevent diseases from spreading. You know, it's a big uh, scare tactic to try to scare producers into having an RFID uh, electronic tagging system. Plus, Fox and other ranchers are skeptical of who's looking at the database. The biggest concern that producers have is who controls the data, even if there isn't a disease outbreak. Who, who gets to count the numbers of cattle? Who gets to keep that data secure? But Ron Gill, an extension specialist with Texas A&M, says the idea behind Cattle Trace is to weed out sick cattle and keep beef coming to your grocery store shelves. That is the entire premise behind it, to try to show that we can show where disease come from, get the rest of the cattle back in the market quicker. And Gardner says ranchers who use Cattle Trace may have an economic advantage, new markets. I can send my cattle and sell my cattle to the European Union or to China, to, to markets that I can't have if I don't have this documentation. Initial funding for the nonprofit runs out this June. Cattle Trace officials say they plan to continue to try to get 68% of U.S. cattle into the system, but they don't have a steady stream of funding yet. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Corinne Boyer. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Learning to farm takes hard work, determination, and a lot of elbow grease. For Meredith Cohen, it also took diving deep into her own ideas about faith and fellowship. Josephine McRobbie spoke with Meredith at One Soil Farm. 
I'm asked a fair amount, like, what is a Jewish farm? What is a Jewish farmer? Like, what does it mean to be a Jewish farmer? There's the way that being Jewish could influence how I farm. And there's the way that farming and being connected to land informs my Judaism and what it means to me to be Jewish. And I think that both of those things are very intertwined. Ten years ago, North Carolina native Meredith Cohen was working as a teacher. She was experiencing burnout and wondering how to create a more sustainable life. She was starting to garden and dabble in homesteading, and she was also longing for Jewish community and was having a hard time figuring out how to find it. So when I discovered that Adama existed, like when I first saw the words Jewish farm, like in the same place, I was like, oh, it just sort of planted the seed in my head of like, that, that's, where, that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. Adama is a Jewish farming program in Falls Village, Connecticut. Residents spend two to three months living communally on the 10-acre farm, immersed in operations like growing vegetables, tending to goats, and helping with lacto-fermentation. Meredith stayed for three years. She was immersed in Jewish culture in a way she never had been. It was like throwing myself in the deep end. Like It was like getting to be in a Jewish place um, that runs on a Jewish calendar, where you just really get to be surrounded by by Jewish community and culture, and also by, I think, more diverse Jewish community and culture than we often get to in, like, the rest of our society right now. Um, at Adama, it's a pluralistic space, so, you know, people who had the full range of experiences from feeling really alienated from Judaism and wanting to get a chance to to explore that and be in that community, and also, you know, like, living in the same house with people who had grown up Orthodox, and maybe it was their first time being around people who weren't Orthodox. And so it's just, it's it's a really vibrant community. We have some winter squash, delicata, and butternut. In 2016, Meredith moved back to North Carolina, where she spent two years rerouting herself in her own local communities and working on local farms to learn how to grow in the southeastern climate. We have cucumbers, eggplants, okra. We're walking through One Soil's half acre in Cary with her sister Caitlin and nephew Ellis. They're on land that's leased out of the incubator farming program Good Hope. She currently sells southern staples like squash, watermelon, and greens at her own farm stand outside the Jewish Community Center in Durham. Next, she hopes to create a CSA program that operates through both local synagogues. Meredith, Caitlin, and Ellis are saying a blessing over a tiny cucumber Ellis has picked off the plant. Should I bite it? (laughs) One of my favorite things about Judaism is that we have very specific blessings. Like, there's not just a blessing you say before food, and there's not even just one blessing that you say before eating a piece of fruit or a vegetable. There's a blessing that you say for eating fruit from a vine. There's blessing that you say before eating fruit from a tree and there's a blessing you say before eating fruit or vegetables from the earth and and I think getting to say those blessings after physically picking a fruit from a tree or a vegetable from the ground and then getting to say the blessing and have that experience um, it's just really special For Meredith, there's a connection between the practice of farming and being in active dialogue with her own Jewish identity and her history. It really is a reconnection. The truth is that Jewish people, like all people, have agricultural roots. Um, And 
you know, we're a diasporic people, as in, you know, for thousands of years, we've been forced to move around a lot. Um, But if you look at our traditions, um, and even our religious traditions, they do come from agricultural roots. And many of our holidays that over time, we've come to, you know, sort of connect with a biblical or historical story are also really connected to the land and to harvest and to the seasons. There's just really exciting and meaningful um, things happening where people are reconnecting Jewish holidays and traditions to nature and the seasons and what does it mean to be connected to land. This relationship to land can be complex, and that's something she hopes, by having a physical space to gather, that she can address more fully. I'm Jewish, and there's a history of diaspora there, and I think it can be really healing for our community to explore our relationship with home and what does it mean to to claim a place as home and to build a relationship there um, that feels lasting and safe. And I'm also white and You know, I live here in North Carolina and, you know, our country is, was built on colonialism and enslaving people. And even just me figuring out, you know, what does it mean to own land or to farm land is really complicated. And I think that when people have those conversations actually on land, it changes the way we can have those conversations. A grounded and connected approach is reflected in the name of her farm, One Soil, a term coined by Carl Hammer of the Vermont Compost Company, signifies both the physical transformation of waste into fertilizer, as well as the ephemeral nature of her own lives. It's cited often at Adama, and it's one of Meredith's most treasured memories of her time there. You're walking across the farm and you see people schlepping compost up the hill and someone yells one and everybody else yells back soil. <laughs> it's actually like a cheer that happens. Um, and I kind of think of it as shorthand or just like just a reminder that we're all connected. Like we're all connected to each other. We're all connected to the land. Thanks to producer Josephine McRobbie for that story. Production support comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown, at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.
Growing food is hard work, and it can be difficult to make a decent living as a farmer. The average annual farm income is $43,000, and less than half of all farms had positive net cash farm income in 2017. While 96% of farms and ranches are family-owned, the average size is over 400 acres. Smaller farms with earnings in the $50,000 range represent under 3% of the total farms in the U.S. I'm Shana Mallet Hartwood, and I'm the director of Farmsteaders and also currently starting a farm down here in North Carolina. Filmmaker Shana Mallet had grown up in a farming community, and she'd experienced a way of life that seemed to be disappearing. Through her film, Shana wanted to share an intimate, close-up glimpse into the world of those who chose to live their lives as farmers. She zoomed in on one family, the Nolans in rural Ohio, who run a small dairy farm. Let's listen to a short clip from the film. I never thought I would be a farmer. When we moved here, but I'd never been to a dairy farm. I like to jump into something, and then I find out everything I can. When we got cows and started milking, that kind of gave me confidence in myself that I could do something that was hard. When we started, we milked for four years at a loss. You cannot make a living milking the number of cows that we milk and selling your milk wholesale. We borrowed money, maxed out all of our credit cards, got a second mortgage, and then maxed out all the credit cards again. I would run every check that we get to the bank as soon as we get it. The way that we made farming work for us is through cheese. We're five years into our cheese-making business, and we still struggle, but I don't feel like I'm drowning. I had a chance to speak with Shana, the filmmaker, and one of the farmers featured in the film. I'm Celeste Nolan. I'm the co-owner and cheesemaker at Laurel Valley Creamery in Gallipolis, Ohio. The 110-acre dairy farm in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains has been in Nick Nolan's family since the 1940s. When Nick and Celeste decided to move to the farm and get the dairy operation going again, they didn't quite grasp how things had changed since his grandfather was dairy farming. As Celeste says in the clip we just heard, they couldn't make it work selling milk wholesale. Milk prices are set by the government. They're set, they're, you get paid for the milk that you produce. Um, you normally sign a contract with someone. They come and pick up all of your milk. They do it every other day. At the end of the month, the person that bought your milk, the milk company comes and they give you a check for what they said your milk was worth. And that was determined by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and how much cheddar cheese prices were that three different people were bidding on, you know, just things that were very unrelated to the cost of production. It's a formula that they figure out based on how much cheese they have in storage and the price of corn. And this is how much we're going to give you regardless of how much it costs to make it. And so milk prices, I mean, they, they fluctuate and they go up and down, but they're not, they're, especially now, they're not sustainable for anybody. I honestly don't know 
what we thought we were doing when we first started milking cows. It cost more money than we were making to produce the milk. So, when life gives you milk, make cheese. The Nolans decided to try making cheese. Cheese making was, it was the lowest capital investment. It required the least amount of equipment. Um, and also cheese making, cheese you don't have to have a market for the day that you make it. You can put it in the aging room and six months later it tastes better. Cheese making allowed us to, well, spend, invest less money originally and then build the market. And it's something we still do. It's, we balance our fresh cheeses with our aged cheeses to meet demands. In the film, you see Celeste in the cheese house late at night over stainless steel vats of steaming milk. But I wanted to hear more details of cheese making at this scale. Cheese is, well, I guess we have to go back and start with milk. Milk is 86% water. The other 14% of milk is fat and proteins. And so when you make cheese, what you're doing is you're turning the naturally occurring sugars, the lactose that's in milk, into lactic acid, and you're getting rid of all of the water. I make both fresh and raw milk cheeses. So the fresh cheeses, all the milk has been pasteurized. It's been heated up to 145 degrees, kept there for 30 minutes, and then cooled back down. Um, the raw milk cheeses, I just heat up to the beginning temperature. I don't. I skip the whole pasteurization process. Then that varies in legality. I think from. I don't know if it varies from state to state. I know that as long as raw milk cheeses are aged over 60 days they're inhospitable to anything dangerous. So it has the same effects as pasteurization. We do both of those. We add the culture at the beginning. When the milk is warm, it starts turning the sugar into acid. Then we add rennet. We use this vegetarian rennet. It helps the protein and the fat bind together. Mm. Uh, so I, they cling together. And that's why when you make cheese, you want to have a, a matching number. You want to have a high protein milk content as well as high fat because that's how you get that's where all the volume comes from that's where all that you want to have all the fat and the, you want all the fat to have something to cling to and it clings to protein so they they bind together what we do then it turns into a milk solid it goes from liquid milk to solid milk and when you add the rennet and then we cut the curd and begin to cook it and we just cut that whole solid into little squares uh, and we start heating them and cooking them and it just starts expelling water and those that fat and the protein they cling and bind together and they shrink down and get smaller as they're pushing out all that water and there you have curds and they kind of look like cottage cheese essentially and then depending on what type of cheese that I'm making the the steps vary a little bit um, we make fresh cheddar curds so that's a cheese that I make every week we sell those at the farmer's market and to some restaurants and cheddar is a verb so once I have what looks like the cottage cheese in the bottom of the vat, I, it forms a slab. And when you flip that slab over and you stack it on top of the, itself, that's called cheddaring. Mm. And that's why we have cheddar cheese. <laughs> so I cheddar that. It comes out of the vat and gets cut up into small pieces and salted. And that's ready to go. That's ready to sell, ready to turn, it, turn into cash. Uh, <laughs> I can also press that and age it and turn it into a aged cheddar cheese. Uh, we press even more of the whey out of it and then wait three or four months and then we have blocks or wheels of cheddar. Some of the other cheeses that I made, this morning I made pepper jack, which is a fresh cheese, 
but then when it's when it looks like cottage cheese there at the bottom I mix in some fresh peppers that we grew in our garden and some salt and then I put that into molds and press the whey out of it and I'll be I'll have that for sale in about two weeks I also make a soft cheese called Cloverton that's that has a that's the only cheese that really has a different process, so to speak. It's a lactic curd cheese and it takes, um, oh, I don't know, about three days for us to make it. It's another one that we do every week. I, I guess one of my goals has always been to take things that we're familiar with and make them better. And so that's what I think all of our cheeses do. They're not crazy out there flavors. They're mm -hmm. not something that's like too far out of anybody's palate. They're just like when you start with good things, the end result tends to be better. So, and that's what I, I hope that's what comes through in our cheese. One of the things that comes through in the film is the everyday immediacy of work on the farm. On the farm, the cows get milked two times a day, 365 days a year, normally around nine in the morning and about seven in the evening. And that milk needs to be made into cheese and delivered, and cows need to be fed, and kids need to be fed, and story time, and laundry needs to be done. Yeah, there's not, you don't, we don't drive away from it. And it's, even if we come inside and, you know, try to ignore it for a while, it's still, you know, it's still right there. One of the ways the filmmaker captured so many intimate moments with this family was by visiting and filming them for weeks at a time over the course of five years. Patterns repeat themselves, kind of sometimes some of the same struggles repeat themselves and you see the rhythms of the seasons uh, and how the family is living within the rhythms of the seasons and uh, how the children, they kind of grow up into different roles on the farm. It's interesting just being able to watch this one place, this one piece of land and this one family over five years and just how everything changes and the things that don't change. Shana Mallet is a documentary filmmaker, photographer, educator, and farmer. Her first feature-linked documentary film, Farmsteaders, aired last fall on PBS stations on the documentary film series POV. Check POV.org for more about the film. Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. 
Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Maria Carter, Dana Cronin, Shana Mallett-Hartwood, Celeste Nolan, and Meredith Cohen. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected, more at BillRushInsurance.com. Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net.